Okay, we're still uh, introducing Ruth, uh, the main themes. The two themes we uh, opened up or started on last week, uh, God's purpose worked out in everyday life and then God's purpose worked out in everyday love. And we uh, covered the first, but we're in the midst of the second one. So I'd like to take this up and then we're going to see that this love... uh, and the old, I got thicker pens. Uh, I didn't get them. Uh, Knox did, so thank you. <laughs> we talked about this word last week. This is a English version of chesed, and this is a chesed, right? <clears throat> and this is, uh, as we said, it's in the ESV is steadfast love. Or in the NIV is unfailing love. And then, uh, as we, we'll we'll get to this uh, part as we transition to the to the New Testament. But I'd like like you to turn with uh, me to Ruth, and let's trace a little bit of how it describes this Chesed love in the life, especially. Of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is not that easy to find. It's on page 222. Now, Ruth is, it's, it's not always easy to describe the kind of book it is, but uh, they would say basically that it's a short story. And so in a short story as, a vo- as opposed to a, a novel, and this is in keeping with biblical writing, that there, the, the characters are revealed, not developed, okay? Revealed, not developed in a flash because it's a short story. You don't have that long to develop characters, and so they're just flashed out to us. And in Hebrew writing, especially so in Ruth, this comes through dialogue. So <laughs> if you want a you know, high-sounding term for this, you call it dialogical epiphany. All right, let's say it together. Dialogical epiphany, all right? Epiphany and appearing, right? So it's through dialogue that these characters just immediately come on the scene. And through this dialogue, you see who they are. And the primary thing that is stressed in Ruth is the, the character of Hesed as it's revealed in these, uh, in these people. And especially as you get to the end, uh, this is done to set before us the example we should follow. So these are exemplary characters. And that's why, as I mentioned last week, sometimes Ruth is put in the ancient writings uh, right before wisdom, sometimes with the prophets, because it has that nature about it. It's not just a story. It's a, it's a depiction 
that tells you, you go and do likewise. You be like these people. You follow what they follow. Uh, that is Ruth and Boaz in particular, and Naomi for sure as well. Uh, it's just that uh, Ruth and Boaz take a little bit, uh, the, they have more emphasis on their characters. But again, Naomi is the main character. We talked about that last week. Um, she's, it's her difficulty that's described in verse uh, 5 and, and, and uh, 6, especially there in verse uh, 5. I'm, I'm sorry, verse 5, yeah, that her sons died, Maon and Kilion, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That's the primary situation presented. And then its relief is given toward the end of the book when we're told that the child is put on her lap. She, verse chapter 4, verse 16, then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And in the Hebrew, uh, you can't see this in the English, but when it talks about, we talked about this last week, but when it talks about her two sons, they're called her two boys or her children. Yeled is the, the Hebrew word. And then at the end, the yeled is put in her lap. So that's a typical Hebrew way to say, here's the enclosure. We're putting, here's the story. She lost her children. She got a child. That's the, that's the main action here. But it's accomplished through the faithful, steadfast love of Ruth and Boaz. And that's, that's our takeaway is we can accomplish great things in our society by faithful love, steadfast love. That's what we must give ourselves to. And maybe you could say that Christ calls us to that, right? Uh, We'll see how this is paralleled in the New Testament by the kind of outstanding love that Christ calls us to. Okay, so the intent of the story to show the quality of this character is especially the character of chesed, faithful, or steadfast love. And you see this in this flash of revelation uh, in verse, in the first chapter, and what happens is the, the writer, in telling this story, he plays off normal reactions. There's nothing wrong with Orpah. She, you can't fault her. For finally, after three times, uh, Naomi says, go back, go back, go back. And finally, she goes back. And it's a sensible thing for Orpah to go back with her uh, family and her, her native land, because that's her best chance for survival. It's not a good chance to go to a foreign land as a woman that has no attachment to a man. You're just attached to a widow who she has nothing. You both have nothing and you're going and you're a foreign woman and you're in danger if you go to a foreign land uh, of being abused. But that's what, that's what uh, Ruth does. Orpah takes the sensible road. She goes back to her family to find her gods and and her people, you know. Nothing wrong. You can't say, well, that was just an evil thing to do. It's just a normal thing. But that's the foil to set forth how different it was that Ruth reacted in her way. And so Kessid love 
is love that's not expected. It's a surprising love. It's beyond love. It's, I mean, beyond what you expect. It's generous. Uh, and so that's the kind of love that's portrayed here is love that comes seemingly out of nowhere. So we're shocked, really, if you're reading this story, especially with the uh, understanding of the culture, for Ruth to, to tell Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And you know the words very well. You've heard them so many times. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will my, be my God. And where you die, there will I be buried. I love that last part. And may the Lord curse me if I don't do that, right? So this sets the tone and everything she does after this follows from it. That is, it, it shows itself. It continues to manifest itself throughout this story. So it's not that she just throws out famous words and then doesn't back them up. But this sets the tone for how she's going to live. So how do you hear about her? How do you learn about her? It's more dialogue, more speech. For instance, in chapter two, uh, Boaz tells her all that you've done. She, she wonders, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Verse 10, since I'm a foreigner, you don't do this for foreigners. But Boaz says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. I mean, they see it, right? They know how radical this is that she did this. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then later in chapter 10, again, Boaz, I'm in chapter three, verse 10. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness. That is her desire to marry him and not a younger man. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And then at the end, one of the most amazing statements is made about Ruth in verse 15. You remember uh, how uh, terrible it was that uh, Hannah's husband said, if I, am I not more to you than many sons or whatever? You remember that statement he makes. Um, am I not more to you than 10 sons? And of course, no, you're not, okay? But this is what said, even more amazing, that it says in verse 14 of chapter four, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. That's because sons were everything in Israel. Having a husband was everything. Having sons was critical for her. And they said, you, he, she is better for you than seven sons. 
And you get the contrast in the very next chapter where Elkanah is saying, am I not more to you than 10 sons? Um, so he couldn't say that, but the ladies, the women sure could say that of Naomi to show how precious and valuable she is. She gets this approbation. She gets this uh, statement of praise and honor because she had lived out Kessid for Naomi. Uh, following Naomi, listening to Naomi, doing, uh, supporting her, working the fields for Naomi, uh, giving her life away completely, her whole future away for the care and fellowship of Naomi. And it was recognized by Boaz multiple times. Her actions toward Boaz was, was recognized and here she is valued. And this is an example for us. This this kind of life lived with Kessid love, you cannot name its worth. That's, the, that's what she means by seven sons. Seven sons is not just seven. It's the perfect number. You know, it's the absolute number. No matter how many sons you would have, they're not as valuable as Naomi, as, as Ruth, because she gave herself to Kessid love. That's how precious you are, brothers and sisters, if you live out Kessid love in this world, if you live out, as we're going to see more of, of course, the sacrificial love of Christ, you lay down your lives for others as Christ has laid down his life for, for you. There is no limit as to how precious and valuable your life will be on this earth. And especially when it happens in the midst of suffering, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of deprivation and tragedy for God's people historically have lived that love out at the worst possible times. And you talk about unexpected, you talk about people thinking you're going to just draw in and take care of yourself. And, you know, I'm the one bruised and broken here. And God's people historically just continue to pour themselves out for others, no matter what. It's like what we saw first time from 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love endures and bears because it's hopeful and it believes in God's grace. And so it continually pours itself out for others in all circumstances. Well, um, it's interesting that for her, you know, he, he said there in verse 10, uh, in, in chapter two, you've come under the wing of the God of Israel. You've come uh, to take refuge under his wings. And then verse nine of chapter three, I am Ruth, your servant, spread your wings over your servant for your redeemer. So chapter three, she says, spread your wings. And does he spread his wings? Yeah. So how was it manifested that she came and and rested under the wings of Yahweh. It happened because of Boaz. So God's Kessid love is manifested in his people and they became the wings to care for her. And that's what you become, you see. You're the wings of God and people first taste, first touch, you might say, that that. The wings of God 
that spread a shadow and a protection and are concerned about others and listen when they share their pain and, and enter into their suffering, etc. They first see God's love in you. Chesed love hits the ground through God's people. And you become the first feel they have of what it's like to be under the wings of God as you extend your chesed love wings over other people, your neighbors, your friends, your relatives. What a privilege for you to to be the wings of God in other people's lives. And if you're like me, I have to be constantly reminded of that privilege to have the sense of holy self-worth, you might say, that in God's hands, I really can become the wings of God to other people. That's an important thing to realize. And to deny that is to deny God's grace in your life. It's to deny that God wants to use you. It's to, de- to deny that he will manifest his love through his people. Um, so that, this, that, the wings thing is, is really huge. Also reminds me of uh, the Tom Hanks movie with the wings driving off on the truck at the end. You know, um, What's the name of that? Castaway. Yeah, Castaway, yeah. But I digress, okay. <laughs> All right, so this is what Chesed looks like, a free act. It's gracious, it's generous, it's beyond the call. Uh, it's the whole purpose of our life is to live out this Chesed love. Um, I'm, I'm going to hold off on uh, uh, Boaz's manifestation of this love as it's shown throughout this passage, but we'll, we'll get to that as we come. Uh, so I do want to um, talk then about the New Testament and how this Kessid love, what I, w- I would call Kessid love, finally revealed, of course, in the person of, of Christ. And we see the nature of it as, as the New Testament writers talk about it, that it's beyond what we could have imagined or expected, right? It's that kind of love. And so you get the passage, which I don't have here, but you have the passage in Romans 5, 6 through 8, where... Paul, in talking about the love of God, says, you know, a good man, you you might die for a good man. And you think of situations where policemen die for people, firemen die for people, the military dies for people. Um, But almost without fail, they don't die for their enemies, right? They're dying for their friends. They're dying for associates. They're dying for brothers and sisters. They're dying in kind of an extended family uh, of, of, of our citizens and, and uh, our people, etc. But as Paul says there, God demonstrates his love. Uh, that's chapter 5, verse uh, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there's that kessed love that is beyond what you expect. It's a love that no human being really witnesses, 
We don't die for enemies. I, I give to kids the illustration of, let's just suppose I'm on a ship and something bad happens to one of my children by somebody on the ship, okay? Now, before this, let's just say, what if my child fell into the water, shark-infested waters? What am I going to do? Hopefully, I'll do what I think I would do, is I'm going to dive in, and even if I get killed, right, I'm going to try to protect my child from the sharks. All right, but this guy has uh, abused one of my children. They throw him in the brig. He gets out of the brig, and he's running, and he falls in the water, shark-infested waters. Am I going to go rescue this guy? <laughs> no, what will I be doing? Cheering on the sharks, right? <laughs> Too bad. I hope they get you and get you fat. I mean, that, that would be my reaction because he's my enemy. He's attacked my child. I'm not going to sacrifice my life for him. You may think that's a severe illustration, but it doesn't even approach how badly we've acted toward God. Do you understand? It's not, it's not like a disproportionate example like, well, they just actually attacked your son. Yeah, I think we attacked Jesus, right? We rejected him. Humanity hates God, but he dies for those who hate him. Like I would die for this man who despised my child and hurt my child. So this is love that comes from a place we can't imagine, we can't understand it. But here's the, here's the rub, so to speak. He doesn't, he doesn't leave us just to admire that love, right? From afar, and just, that's what we do. We just admire, we do admire the love of God. But it doesn't stop there, does it? He calls us, you live out this love now. You live out the unexpected love. You love your enemies. You pray for those who persecute. You see, the same love that God has shown to us is going to indwell us by his Holy Spirit. And he is going to expect us to show chesed love. Unexpected generosity. Unexpected grace and kindness. Where no one would think you would do it. But you do. Because you belong to Christ and you have his spirit. And this isn't to pile something on you. This is to say, brothers and sisters, this is how great his salvation is to us. Right? This is something you can make happen in your life. I can't make it happen in my life. This is the extent of his salvation. He rescues us from ourselves to such an extent that we become like him. That's the greatness of this salvation. And it becomes an excuse in my life if I look at Jesus and I say, well, I just could never love that way. Well, yeah, in yourself, Darwin, you can't. But don't you dare say that's the end of the story. You know, I just can't love like that, so I'm not going to try or I can't be expected to love like that. Jesus expects it and equips us by his Holy Spirit to love in those radical ways. The early church transformed the world because they really lived out that love. And you hear one uh, emperor, I mean, he, he really wasn't complaining. He was just 
<laughs> announcing the fact that says they love us better than we do. They find our babies on the trash heap and they rescue them and take them into their home. You know, these are, you, you could leave your, if you didn't want your child as a, a Roman citizen, you could just throw your child away. I mean, didn't have to be aborted, just infanticide, just kill your child. Christians would go to the trash heaps and find these babies to take them into their house. Um, these are pagan, you know, would-be pagan children. And you, you see this love that who, nobody in the Roman Empire would do that. Nobody at all. Just Christians. Just those transformed by Jesus. Just those living out the love of Jesus. So this Kessid love set before us in Ruth, set before us as an example to follow out and, and you live out your life in, in ways that cannot be expected is magnified in the New Testament by the call to live as Christ, uh, love as Christ has loved us. And these are... These are familiar passages uh, to you. I won't keep us much longer. But I think the, to group them together and kind of and, and see them one after another is very helpful. And maybe to have them all on, uh, you know, one sheet for you uh, can be helpful as you the, the kind of the power and the, the theme of them build upon one another. So you remember what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. I say to you, where uh, whatever has been said, I say to you, here's the new word from me. If you're going to be a part of this kingdom, if you're going to belong to me and belong to God, uh, this is what he's calling you to do. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Notice, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You don't want to love your enemies you don't want to pray for those who persecute you. You're not a child of God. Now, I wouldn't put it so cut and dry, but I'm saying you're not giving evidence that you have the character of your father, that you have the heritage of your father, that you have the life of your father, that you're manifesting your father's love who is in heaven. For what does he do? Well, he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. Here's a person absolutely denying God. Perhaps he's doing terrible things with his art or his writing to uh, attack the idea of religion. And God keeps bringing his son on him, the son, every day, giving him food, giving him a family, giving him success, giving him all the things that he enjoys while he is bitterly attacking him. That's what he does. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. And then this, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the tax gatherers do that? The tax collectors? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, doesn't mean absolutely perfect, but you must have love like your father has. And so if there are people that oppose you, if there are people that seek your harm, if there are people that are persecuting you, they're your enemies, uh, 
then love them like the father loves his enemies. It's, it's hard. It's hard. It's unnatural. But as the spirit indwells us and we become like our father, we love in all circumstances. And as you know, uh, love is the greatest freedom you can walk in. No matter what anybody does for you, if you love them, if you love other people, you're walking in freedom and nobody can stop that. Nobody can, in a sense, you're indestructible, right? In that harm is done to you, you just love more. Harm is done to you, you just love more. You live in love. So it's an, it's an amazing position of strength uh, in this world is to, to be able to love in all circumstances. And we're like our father. And this is very important to realize this comes from our father. It's only in relationship to our father. It's only as we're children of our father. This is not something that we can bring about on our own. Um, but we do need to manifest that we are children of this father. We're children of the father who sends rain on the unjust and who's, who sends the son for the evil. Let's look like that father. And then Jesus turning things upside down in Mark 10. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when the Lord Jesus himself comes to serve and it's to the point of a bloody servanthood, it's one thing to serve one another, but he served us by giving his life for us, right? So that's the standard. The son of man who has all glory, who should have all rights. If there's anybody that should be served, it's the son of man. But he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And his servanthood went so far as to laying down his life for others. That kind of shuts your mouth when you feel like, well, I just can't do this or that, you know. And you look at Jesus and say, yeah, is that right? Is that right? You, you, You can't lay down your life in this way or that way. You can't sacrifice this or that thing for that person. Um, So again, only Christ can enable us to serve in this way. Only as his life is in us, will we serve in this way and, and manifest that we sacrifice ourselves in a pattern like Jesus sacrificing himself. And again, this is a place of strength because you see God is the one with all authority and all resources. And what does he do with that authority? What does he do with those resources? He lays himself down for others. He doesn't have to bring, you know, he doesn't have to hold on to anything or grasp anything. He has all authority and he gives himself away with that authority. So if you really want to if you have power, if you have authority, you manifest it like God does. I'm going to spend myself for the good of others with the power, the opportunity, the, the, uh, uh, the realm that I have been given 
to do, to do that. And then this uh, great statement from Peter talking to servants, uh, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Serve res- with respect to unjust masters. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And what is so helpful about this, isn't it, is that it is maddening to be treated unjustly. It's maddening when you're treated unfairly and people judge you for what you're doing when you're really doing the right thing, but they think it's something else and they blame you for it. Um, Or you're just persecuted for nothing at all. And here as a servant who's doing all of his work and his master is punishing him just because he wants to punish him, just because he can punish him. Just because he has authority and somehow it makes him feel good. I mean, it's a terrible situation. You can imagine how you'd want to, you know, at some point just kill this guy. He's beating you and you did what he, he wanted you to do. And yet he's called to treat this man with respect, to care for him. And to endure as Jesus endured. I love when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That is hard to do. Not revile in return. When you're being reviled and, you're, and you've done the right thing and yet you're attacked for it. Um, but here again. When the Spirit indwells us, we are able to live out the love of Christ. Well, the, re- the remaining uh, passages are simply stating that in a general way to love one another as Christ has loved us, John 13. And, you know, he described what the, uh, sorry, I think there's a pen in here somewhere. Okay, I'm turning my first paper over. I've never done that because I've never used one of these before. But um, So in Matthew 22, how did Jesus summarize the law? Anybody? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? Love God. And then love your neighbor as yourself. But here in this passage, he calls it a new commandment. So it doesn't do away with this law, but you might say it kind of expands it, makes it more glorious than it's ever been before. 
because now God has manifested himself in the world in a way we couldn't have dreamed of. He lays down his life for us. All right. So this takes the law and kind of puts it in technicolor. You know, it it puts it in bright letters and extends it further than we thought it could go, because now we have to our, our new law. It's a new commandment. It's a new law. As I have loved you. And this, as we try to live this out, it has a certain horizon on it, certain limitations. My mother used to say that when she moved from West Texas, um, where she could see everything and she was in Northeast Alabama. She said, it felt like I was in a cave everywhere because of trees, you know, right? And in a sense, as glorious as this law is, loving one another as yourself, this like removes all the trees and it expands the horizon and it seems to go further than you ever could have imagined because now the standard is to love one another as Christ has loved us and sacrificed himself. And that goes beyond loving as you love yourself. You know, it just sets a new course, a new standard for you. Now I look at Jesus, I see how he gave himself in the face of my sin. And I seek then to give myself to other people in the face of their sin. And that sets a whole new course for us. And the rest of these passages are the same, especially you might review uh, uh, Philippians 2, where it tells us uh, to consider one another as more important than ourselves. And then he sets the example basically of Christ not holding on to equality with God, but pouring himself out for our benefit. Um, And so in that sense, Jesus is putting us before his own comfort, right? Jesus is putting us before his well-being, if you can say it like that, uh, and humbling himself even to the point of death on the cross. So that becomes our new standard. And and to count one another as more important than yourself is... um, uh, husbands, let's start with our wives. And wives, let's start with our husbands. Uh, that's going to be hard, right? Um, let's start with those who disagree with us, that they're more important than I am. Those who attack us, though they're more important than I am. That's a hard standard. But that's what Jesus lived out, and he will live that out in us. Because as our translation says, have this mind in you, have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. Ah, have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the salvation that he offers us. Well, let's pray. Father, uh, we, we pray that you'd set our eyes high upon the glorious love of Christ and Lord, that we can in some way in, in many ways, in ways that perhaps we couldn't even imagine, live out that chesed love 
become the wings of God to shelter others that we ourselves will gladly lay down our lives for one another and for a broken world that the love of Christ might break out from this people as never before. To your glory and honor we pray. Amen.